Hey folks, thank you so much for tuning in to Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. As always, I am your host, Stephen Craig. Thank you for uh, your patience and uh, for tuning in to this very special edition of the podcast. And the reason I say um, both of those things, both in terms of uh, your patience and in terms of it being a special edition, is uh, this is really the first uh, the first episode of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less where we have uh, a really fantastic guest. Uh, that'll be joining us, and um, I say your patience in it. Uh, this a lot of this part of it, the technology aspect of it, is a bit new to me, uh, and so putting that all together, uh, I'm just will be completely honest and say that I'm a technological dumbass. Um, no, it's just uh, it's just been a learning curve, and it's fantastic. But uh, at the same point, uh, it has taken me a while to get uh, all of that spliced together and work. Um, but with that in mind, uh, I think that I've gotten through at least part of it. It'll get better and better and cleaner and cleaner. Um, adding the music to it and everything else will get, um, will get better and better. So I appreciate your patience and hopefully the content will make it worthwhile. In particular, this episode is going to be fantastic. Now, I was a guest uh, recently and I really urge all of you uh, to go and listen to it. I was a guest recently on the Tao podcast. Uh, that's T-A-O podcast. Uh, the Pandemic Press. Uh, it was episode, I believe, 22. Uh, so if you get a chance, uh, go and check it out. It was a fantastic discussion, um, over an hour actually, about some of the impacts of the pandemic and how it's influenced our lives. Um, and uh, needless to say, we, we disagreed a little bit about, um, about the role of the vaccine and about the role of misinformation. And it led to a really uh, fascinating discussion. So if you want to do that, go ahead and tune in. The discussion, the interview, uh, starts at about minute 10. So uh, go ahead and check that out. Uh, but for this week here on Truth in a Thousand Words or Less, in, uh, on my podcast, um, I am really uh, incredibly lucky to uh, be ho- uh, joined by Frederica Bresson. Um, and we're going to be discussing uh, our uh, my, recent, uh, my recent column called Everybody's a Tourist Somewhere. So with that, let me read for you, everybody's a tourist somewhere. Sometimes living in a resort town just plain sucks. The people who vacation here, especially those that hail from the great state of Texas, or say they would boorishly tell you, are often rude, belligerent, ignorant, and downright oblivious. They do such stupid things sometimes that I often find, often find myself shaking my head in utter bewilderment and disbelief like a Dancing with the Stars judge having to watch Tucker Carlson make an absolute buffoon out of himself on national television during season three, in case you didn't know Tucker Carlson was on Dancing with the Stars, or nightly on his own program, for that matter. In the past couple of weeks alone, I have watched as absent-minded tourists have left their 16-foot canoe parked across a major stretch of highway while they head back down to the water to grab their paddles, left their car unattended in the middle of the bike path, and walked up to a moose to see if they could pet it. Okay, that last one might have been my dad. It's enough to make a sober man drive a sober man to drink. And believe me, I am hardly a sober man. But then I remember the serendipitous beauty that brought them here, and I'm grateful that I get to live in the place they feel fortunate just to visit. And besides, everybody's a tourist somewhere. Whenever any of us go on vacation, no matter how intelligent and resourceful we may be during our regular day-to-day lives, the first second a fruit-infused cocktail hits our hand, mine usually comes somewhere around the airport departure gate, 
We have a tendency to transform into a blithering idiot, incapable of rational thought. We somehow become blithely unaware of all traffic rules and other common municipal regulations as if none of them actually apply to us. We park our rental cars wherever the hell we want. We let our kids scream and act like complete little douchebags. The whole world becomes our own personal garbage bin and urinal. Let's face it. All of us have done things on vacation we would never do in our own hometown, either out of unadulterated shame or fear of the legal ramifications. Perhaps, however, there is a lesson in all this regarding our own personal perspectives and our understandings of what we define as the other. When I was at Woodstock, 94, I remember being irritated every time I tried to lie down by my tent and get a little rest, only to be paraded over and inadvertently kicked by the unending hordes of people passing by. But every time I got up to go see a band playing on one of the secondary stages, suddenly I became one of the hordes doing the unintentional but still annoying parading and kicking. In life, it is best to remember that we are all connected through our basic humanity, ruled by similar impulses and simply trying to do the best we can under the current circumstances. We are all human, after all. When we see ourselves in the other, recognize a small piece of our own flawed existence in the obnoxious but otherwise harmless tourists blocking up traffic for miles because they have nary a clue where they are going, we discover a more intimate part of the universal ties that bind us all together. We develop the core resources of empathy and compassion for our fellow human beings. Moreover, we learn to afford our own selves the latitude and grace to be imperfect, but somehow good creatures nonetheless. I moved to the mountains because I fell in love with the breathtaking splendor of the peaks, the sublime levity of the air that flowed through my lungs, and the open-ended possibilities for adventure and discovery. A very similar divine revelation is what brought many of them here to visit. I am blessed to have the opportunity to spend my waking moments here, to rise each day in the basking glow of nature. These people are no different than I am. Okay, sure. They stop at every street corner taking selfies, stumble haphazardly into the road, as if cards did not exist in our sleepy little hamlet where pedestrians are magically inoculated from the harms of oncoming traffic, and act like precocious whiny brats when the supermarket fails to carry the dietary supplement they can always get at home. But hey, I do the same thing whenever I go to Costa Rica or New Zealand or Lincoln, Nebraska for that matter which I would never do unless carjacked. The point is that even though we may consider ourselves too cool for school locals when in our home, hometown, we can all serve to remember that we do the exact same thing when we are suddenly the tourists. Now, not everyone lives in a resort town with this particular dynamic, but the lesson applies far beyond that particular scope. How many times have we mocked someone who is an earnest but pathetic novice trying something at which we are a veritable expert. You know, like me with skiing, for example. How often have we scoffed at what seemed to us like an unbelievably inept question during a meeting or conference? The fact is that we all sucked at that activity or didn't know the answer to that question at some point in our lives. What then gives us the right to sit up on our high horse of scorn and derision to jeer at those who are now where we once were? When we stop to ponder their true source, derision, frustration, and anger are all born from the same illusion of separateness 
that deludes us into a false sense of superiority that makes us feel better about ourselves. But when we realize that at our core, we are all bound together in our fallibilities and foibles, that we share a common thread of both simultaneous perfection and imperfection, we open the door to embracing not only ourselves, but others also. Except those fuckers from Texas. They're just plain assholes. Sorry for all of my friends out there from Texas. Just a little humor pointed your way. Uh, I don't really mean it. But um, what I do mean is for you to listen to the next hour conversation coming up with Frederica Bresson. She is absolutely um, fantastic. Uh, I couldn't be. Um, I couldn't have been more fortunate and more blessed uh, to have had uh, Frederica as our first guest here. Um, she joins us uh, from um, from just outside of Rome, Italy. And with that, um, this is Frederica Bresson. Thank you, everyone. All right, my fellow truthers, we are incredibly uh, we are incredibly fortunate today. I am being joined by Frederica Bresson. Uh, Frederica is a university professor. She is also the host of uh, an amazing podcast called Technoculture. Uh, Frederica, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm doing great. Oh, it is just a, really a joy to get to talk to you. Uh, why don't you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about your background before we get started today? Sure. Well, uh, where, where should I begin? <laughs> um, based upon our previous conversation and about where we're going to be going today, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you've lived so far in your life? Uh, it's a fairly extensive list. And uh, tell us a little bit about um, your own vocational background. Yeah, well, I just realized that I hit that age where your history starts being so long that you have to ask the question, how much of it do you want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have 10 years on you, I think. So I think we're good there. Uh, so I'm speaking to you from central Italy, uh, near Rome where I'm not originally from, we can say that COVID took me here. I was previously living in uh, New York and in Brussels, in Belgium, for about the past five years. In the past 10, I have worked as an academic researcher, and that is a fantastic job that takes you uh, abroad with which you move if you're happy to move or not everybody's happy to move. I was very happy to move. So I traveled a lot during the past decade for work, more recently for my podcast. Uh, but if you want to know places I have lived, like not visiting, but that I have lived, that would be Italy because I'm Italian. So up to a certain age, I was here from the Northeast of Italy, quite far away from where I'm now. And then Brussels, Belgium, and New York, and Egypt for a while. Wow! Now you hadn't mentioned Egypt before, um, and you—I think you included Montreal when we were t talking yesterday. Is that one true as well? That's true. Well, I stayed there for about two months of my life. I don't okay. know. I consider that a visit. But uh, yeah, and in Toronto also, a couple of other months. That was a six months stay in Canada, a couple of months in Toronto, and then I spent a full month traveling um, by train through Canada and the United States, and that was September 2001. And then I stayed a month in Montreal, and then I came back to Europe so 20 you were years across, ago. You were traveling by train across the Canada and the United States in September of 2001? 
Yes, 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 yes. In August, uh, I remember it's 20 years ago, actually, 20 years ago today, I had just arrived, probably still recovering um, from the jet lag. My first experience with the jet lag, everything was new. I was 20 years old, exactly. And so in August, I remember I was at the uh, train station in Toronto, and I saw the advertisement for this railway pass. That was quite a new thing in North America, because uh, people tend to drive there more or you fly. And I had traveled extensively by train in Europe. And so I knew what that type of ticket was and how it worked. And it was 800 Canadian dollars. And I took it. And so I left from the 1st to the 30th of September, not knowing what I was putting myself into. And I started from Toronto to Vancouver and then all the way south to Los Angeles. And that's where I was on 9-11. Yeah, And then I traveled east again, all the way to New Orleans, up Memphis, and then D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Buffalo, Toronto. Uh, interesting that you stopped in Buffalo, that you even included Buffalo. Most people I actually did not stop. I was just telling you the route. I did not stop. Okay. My you last can... stop was Boston. I mean, even people in Buffalo don't really stop in Buffalo for very long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a friend of mine who I play hockey with up here and he's from Buffalo and I never I hear more Buffalo jokes from him than anybody else I know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually a very humorous side side note is that one of my children um, who will not be named because <laughs> I have two of them and I don't want to point out which one was the stupid one in this occasion but when we got <laughs> we a friend of mine ordered Buffalo wings and the child looked at me and said, huh, what part of the buffalo do they get the wings from? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, it makes perfect sense. It makes, it makes zero sense, actually, if you think about how big a buffalo wing is. Um, <laughs> a baby buffalo. Right. It would have to or be if, if buffaloes. Buffalo. If buffaloes had larger wings, they would fly, but they don't because they have small. They have very small wings and thus they stay grounded. Maybe or or they could lose weight, a lot of weight, and then maybe those little wings would help them to fly. But otherwise, those little buffalo wings. I'm with your kid. That was a perfectly sensible question. (laughs) Um, It's funny that you mentioned the the, the rail pass across the United States. I always used to bemoan that we didn't have one when I was younger. because I would have traveled more in night in uh, both 1995 and 1996, I think the summers, I, can't, I take it back. It was the summers probably of 96 and 97, I guess. Um, I was teaching at a boarding school in the East coast. And uh, so for the summers we had, you know, I had room and board all during the school year, but during the summer, they're like, you're on your own. Uh, and so what better way to spend the summer than traveling across Europe? And Europe, of course, is famous for having wonderful rail options. Um, and they were really affordable, especially for somebody that was in their 20s. Um, and so I, I spent two whole summers traveling across Europe. And, um, and it was two of the best summers of my life. And I, I credit that a lot with being able to... Um, the self-sufficiency and reliance of, uh, and we're going to get into what it's like to be a tourist. Um, but I like to think that those two summers helped me to not be a tourist in other places, mm-hmm. um, that I could figure, I could kind of figure shit out on my own. 
um, and be like, be able to read a map, be able to look at a subway, <laughs> be able to look at a, you know, a subway plan and be able to figure out where I wanted to go. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad to hear, to be honest, I didn't even know we really had much of a rail option. The United States is so car centric. I know it was a new thing then, 2001. Yeah. And uh, what do I want to say? Uh, you spent two summers traveling through Europe. What countries? I have been over the course of those three months. And the, the best thing about having a rail pass like that is that you could just go and spend, like if you, if you enjoyed being somewhere, I just stayed. You know, I didn't have any oh, yeah. definitive itinerary. I knew what airport I was flying into. I knew what airport I was flying out of. And at some point I had to make it back to that place. But otherwise everything was sort of on a whim um, I traveled that, um, I've been to most countries in Europe. Um, I haven't, you know, it was in the mid nineties. So I didn't get to a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries because they were still, um, they were still really not particularly accessible for travelers. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, and that if you go anywhere from Czechoslovakia West, I've been to almost the one country I haven't been to that I would really someday I really do need to make it to is Portugal. Oh, yes. I love Portugal very much. It's beautiful, isn't it? I could live there. I can see myself living there. Yeah. I, I, Wonderful. I thought about that too. I also thought at some point, maybe Spain, like some part in the Southern coast of Spain. Um, when I was here in Breckenridge, I hosted, we do, they have the uh, snow sculpture competition. Uh, uh -huh. and they bring in teams from all over the world. It's fabulous. Uh, and I hosted the team from Barcelona. Um, and I have a permanent invite to come visit them anytime and stay with them for as long as I like. And uh, I'm going to take them up on it at some point. You have people flying there from all over the world to build snow sculptures or yeah. ice sculptures? Wow. Snow sculpture or snow because it's really snow. remarkable. Ice sculpture is a bit different, right? Um, snow, the, um, as I understand it, I, I basically just sat around and drank and watched them. Uh, <laughs> right? but, um, and and it, it may, let's be clear, those Spaniards can outdrink me any day. Like, you know, well, you're not that far. What do they know about the snow? I know right? in Barcelona of all places, like it's not, it wasn't like they were up on in the Pyrenees, like near the French border. No, no, no. They were in Barcelona. Um, they were all artists. Um, and the thing that's really remarkable about building with snow is that you have to be really, um, you have to be really conscious of the physics of it uh, so that the sculpture doesn't inevitably collapse on itself. Um, and so in addition to the aesthetics, when they judge it, 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 they also take into account how much you've taken into account, like the physics and, and doing something daring you know, something with like a span, like a bridge or a span that makes it so that you have to somehow or another support it. It's really fascinating. All right, so when we left off, uh, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about rail across, uh, not only across this country, but elsewhere. Um, what places, what places feel like home to you? I mean, you've lived a few places, but what places feel like home to you? My car. <laughs> now you are an American. Yeah, <laughs> not because I'm homeless, right? It's just because <laughs> when I'm moving from a country to the other, 
uh, when I'm switching homes, uh, for example, when I drove from Brussels to here in October last year, uh, I was just happy when I load my car with everything I may ever need for the uh, following couple of weeks. And I start driving, you know, you're comfortable in your car, you have music and, you know, hopefully nice weather or not, who cares? And GPS now, which makes everything so easy because when you travel so far across different countries, I cannot imagine doing that before the internet or before these te this technology here, uh, which I did traveling by train, for example. That was all before the internet was on our smartphones. We didn't have smartphones. Of course, the internet existed, but people weren't using it. So you did the same traveling through Europe, reading a map, getting a map, getting to a new place, finding the info point first. But with my car, now you just set your destination and you don't care if you have to drive through Luxembourg, France or Germany, Switzerland. You just, you know, keep going. You can relax and enjoy the music. And that feeling of being on the road alone in my car, priceless, oh, just priceless. Yeah, there's um, there's something really enjoyable about that. It's funny that you bring up the GPS part of it, though. You know, when it um, GPSs aren't always perfect, and sometimes it's nice to take the long way somewhere. You know, sometimes I like to just because I find myself when I have the GPS on, I find myself oftentimes uh, just going by. It, it's like you turn yourself onto autopilot. Um, and I kind of like the idea of going, you know what? No, I'm, I'm part of that decision-making process. I don't know. Maybe that's, I'm, I'm old school like that. Well, um, I don't read the GPS well, so I get many turns wrong anyway. Don't worry. <laughs> right. So at that point, then you kind of are making your own choices. Yeah. And my GPS speaks Dutch. So it says Herberekening. And, in, and it recalculates the route. Wait, did you, spend, does, did you spend enough time in Northern Europe to be able to speak Dutch as well? Well, uh, yes, yes, I, I can speak Dutch, but I'm not really good at it. Okay. But I, and I like it very much. So I tried to absorb it when I was learning it by switching my operating system, my computer to Dutch and my phone to Dutch and my Facebook to Dutch and the GPS to Dutch. It's all about exposure. How many languages? So I actually, I cannot really have a conversation, but I know all the words like delete, move, rename, confirm, <laughs> settings, you know? Right. It seems like your Dutch is particularly focused on technology terms, right? Like the yes, settings yes. for your GPS. Right. Destination or for the <laughs> GPS, it's really nice. It says in 300 meters and, it, you know, it's all in Dutch or at the roundabout. Really um, nice. Humorously, my only Dutch, and this goes out to my step grandmother, uh, the only Dutch I know is et smatlek. Yeah, it's like bon appetit. It's bon appetit. Yeah, it's, it's essentially yeah. eat well. Um, what places? What places feel? What in what places do you feel like a tourist? Hmm. You know, you ask not just big questions. You ask questions uh, that I. Uh, hate to be so pedantic, but that I would say you need to define tourist. Uh, <laughs> it means many things. Uh, I don't. I left it intentionally ambiguous. I know, I know, I know. Hmm. Because I think tourism, right? I think being a tourist, by definition, is a place where you don't feel 
you feel uncomfortable and un and unknowing. Unknowing, I, I think, right? Like that. <laughs> Depending the family you come from, that's the definition of home. <laughs> I might, there are many days where I feel like a tourist in this house. Right. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but we're beyond that understanding of the term. Um, how you define it, I think I intentionally left it ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Well. Um, I'm afraid that wanting to be not even a traveler, but a wanderer of life. Yeah. Uh, I have always not liked this word particularly. Now, mm-hmm. The tourist, uh, I know it cannot only mean this, but if you say tourist, the first idea that comes to my mind is um, a pretty narrow-minded person that goes somewhere for a week bringing all his or her world with them. I know it's a very negative interpretation of the word. A tourist, a tourist, a tourist is a consumer. A tourist goes someplace to enjoy themselves. And if there is some place that has things to offer, they will have uh, built facilities and services for the tourist that comes there. So it's a little bit of a fake experience if you want. This is why some travelers say, oh, and we visited things that mainstream tourists don't go to. That when it it becomes fancy almost to say we went off those routes. Right, that's right. And you're two hours from Rome, right? You're close enough to, you're close enough. You've spent enough time there. I mean, how do Romans feel about tourists in, in general? And, and let's be honest, how do they feel about American tourists specifically? Oh, well, I cannot answer that because I'm not a Roman. Right. And I have not really spent much time in Rome. Okay. Uh, I know that there are not as many tourists now as there normally are. Right. Um, Rome is Rome. It's not even just yet another touristic city. It's not. Uh, it, you know... I don't know, Rome is Rome, there's nothing like Rome. And I don't go there often because since I drive a car and public transport is not that excellent around here, it's a little bit of a journey to go there. And I'm partially lazy, partially I have no reason to go there. And partially I finally enjoy my complete isolation here in this house where I'm for this summer. I've been wanting this for years and I finally found this place where when I close this conversation with you, which I enjoy very much, then it's just crickets and like literally and loud. (laughs) (laughs) Loud crickets. You're not joking about crickets. No, no. It's like millions of crickets and wild boars, never seen so many snakes and spiders. You know, it's not the cute animals. Oh, every person that says I'm an animal lover, I'm like, no, be specific. You like kittens. You know, (laughs) I have spiders and snakes. Right. And bugs and mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I genuinely try to embrace and love all creatures on this planet, but some of those are difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. Or from a distance, at least. You right. know, I don't want to exterminate lizards. Just don't crawl up to my table where I'm eating or something like that. Right. I don't want to get rid of mosquitoes. I just don't want them to bite me. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is which is the not in my backyard mentality. Shame on you. And isn't that? I mean, that's a part of like tourism as well, right? Like we, when we're um, 
it's it's interesting. So when you go to, do you, when was the last time you were in Rome? Was it pre-pandemic? No, it was July 16th. I went there for my first interview in person after a year and a half. Okay, but it was just and business. I, yeah. uh, um, excuse me? It, was it just business? Oh, yes, yes. I spent a night there because I just told you, maybe it's, a, it's not false that it's not false it's not true it's not false that you can i'm sorry i enjoy this conversation very much but you need to lead me because i'm i'm <laughs> just having fun so Good. basically yeah. it's a little bit is true that it's not the easiest thing to go to rome and drive in rome right. and the second thing is i am scared of doing that i'm lazy i just don't want to be in that kind of traffic and you know so to do that interview, I spent a night in Rome because I booked a hotel so that I would already be there that morning. And it was also extremely hot. So I didn't want to, you know, leave my house from here with all the gear, get there, find the place, find a parking, unload the gear, set up the gear. And then basically I need a shower and I need to be on camera. So I just decided to spend a night in Rome. And actually a friend came to pick me up at the hotel and took me out that night. And it was really nice. Once I'm there, I do say, oh, what a shame that I don't visit Rome more often because it is beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, the atmosphere is it's magical. Um, but I'm lazy. Do you, when you're there, do you ever take the the time to do the quote-unquote touristy things of like going to see you know the Colosseum and the, the historical sites around the city? I have done in the past because uh, I haven't been to Rome many times but a couple and so even when I was a child I remember visiting the Colosseum I remember doing those things and once you've done them it's kind of check you know, you don't, you see it because the Colosseum is just in town. So when you walk by or you still see it, but now that you would consciously say, oh, today we visit the Colosseum, we stand in a line, get a ticket, get inside. That's done. Check. Done once. Right. And, and isn't that where, and that's where I was trying to get to that line between tourist and non-tourist, right? Tourist versus quote unquote local. Um, for example, like here in, uh, here in the in a mountain community in the resort community, um, like for example, they have like a zip lining, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know what it is, right? And um, and the only time, or or even better example is um, they'll take ski chairlift rides right up to the mm -hmm. top. You can put your bike on it and then bike down. <clears throat> and I, as a local, would never be caught dead doing that, right? I would never, yeah, never ever do that. I, I would ride my bike up, but I wouldn't ride it on the same, I ride my bike almost every day, um, but I don't go where the quote unquote tourists go because I've already, the only time I'll do that chairlift thing is when I have a friend of mine from out of town. Um, and so sort of part of that de delineation then between a tourist and a local isn't just the amount of time you spent there, but the fact that you've quote unquote checked the boxes. Yeah. So what's, the so what's the tattoo? You just showed your sleeve. So what's the tattoo? Yeah, but we are not on camera oh, during your podcast. It's I forgot earlier on off camera. You asked me about my tattoos, and I showed you too. This yeah. was pretty. That was the one I really wanted. Right. To see. We'll get to that later. No, I wanted to say that when you live someplace, 
maybe you were born there or maybe you just lived there a significant amount of time, you should visit everything there is to see right away or you never will. Interesting. I rem- okay. because, because you can always do it. When I was living in Padua for four years, yeah. Venice is just 15 minutes by train. And it can be nice to go there sometimes, but I never went. I never. And why? Not because I was uninterested, because I could do that anytime. And so I never did. Right. And I think that's exactly it. I think to some degree or another, there are sites in Denver. Um, for example, we have the uh, down in, about an hour south of Denver is uh, the U.S. Uh, Olympic, um, Olympic training site. And it's mm-hmm. this whole it's a whole facility. I had lived here for years and never gone. And it was only mm-hmm. when I had a friend from out of town come in that I eventually went and did that. And I, and I think that that's a big part. I think being a tourist is almost more a mentality. You, you know, when we were talking about where you were raised in, in Northern Italy, Northeast Italy, um, you said that that still didn't feel like home to you even now. Why? Hmm. Hard question. Yeah. Um, I don't have great memories from my childhood. So I, I have always loved traveling and I have always wanted to go to the place. Not every time I travel, I go away from a place, but from right there, from where I was born, you could fairly say that I was just waiting to leave, to go anywhere. And I discovered the world, but that, that would be fair to say. It's, it's weird sometimes in interviews, it's, it's weird, but it, you do always wanna talk about positive things. So um, even now it feels a little bit weird. Uh, am I just going to reveal that I have not had a happy childhood? Who cares, right, among the listeners? But no, that, no, that is where I was born. That is not home. That is where I was born. For the longest time I asked myself if I would go there to die, right? Like closing a circle, maybe. First of all, too early, right? But I'll think about it. I hope so, right. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, COVID, look, it changed many things because when I was in New York and COVID hit, I had to go back to Europe. I was living in Belgium prior to that, but I had left my house there. So I didn't have a house of my own to go back to. And so, you know, fatally, I went back to my father's house. I wasn't very happy, but it seemed an emergency. And what else am I going to do? So fine, you know, and reluctant, but don't get me wrong. I don't see that house as my own. It's my father's house. I'm an adult. So it's not a given that I can always go there. So I was even thankful that I could go there, but reluctant because I don't know if it would work out. And I spent three and a half months there. And it's been eye-opening because maybe I was just ready as an adult to see how much I needed to cut those ties. And when I finally left to go back to Brussels last summer, I really left. And I realized that uh, even if I was 39 then, I had always seen that place as my home. I would say, you know, back home, home. And when I left last year, I said, no, home is where I am. It's where I am. And I could tell you a very funny story 
just to give a positive twist, but that really relates to this, which is I didn't know it last year when I was going back to Belgium and I didn't find any job. And then COVID got even worse in the fall. So they announced another lockdown. And I was like, why I need to be here? I was really happy to be there, but things weren't working out. And that's when I decided that, you know, at that point I was sick of doing plan B, plan C, plan D, because when COVID hit and it changed my plans and I had to, you know, I was really happy in New York. I wasn't happy to come back. Uh, I, I didn't complain. I always tried to say, okay, fine. You know, I cannot help this situation. So let's do something else with a smile. There's always something else to do. So plan B and then plan C and then plan D. And I couldn't find a job and many other things. And then the lockdown, it was like, oh, okay. Now COVID really is in my way. And I know that it's been a sanitary crisis. People died. Okay, I'm aware. I have not have, have had health problems. Oh, so I can complain about other stuff. Right. Just in my personal trajectory, I mean that I realized that, yeah, I was struggling then. And I said, okay, so I, I will stop looking for a job like with this anxiety. I need a job, I need a job, I need a job. I have some savings. Probably they are there for a reason. And I will just find a place where life is cheap and I will spend six to eight months, you know, quote unquote, doing nothing. Then I never do anything, but just relax a little bit and wait that COVID goes away. And I was headed to Sicily. I'm even making the story short, right? Because I, I never wanted to come back to Italy. It, it was long story why I came back here, but I was headed to Sicily because I had never been there. The culture is so different that for me it would be like being abroad and this gave me peace with the idea of going back to Italy because otherwise I don't want to go you know you go to a country but you go back to Italy because you're Italian but if I went far away enough like Sicily where I had never been it would feel like being abroad because I don't know the culture well the accent and I have never been there and they have you'd be uh, a tourist I'd I'd be a tourist. I'd yeah, be a tourist, right, right. like in a positive way, if, right. since we defined tourists in such a negative way before. And they have amazing archaeology and historical sites. And I would be there with my car. So I said, you know, grand. This is how I'm going to spend this winter. And as I was driving south, but without a specific destination, I was just headed to Sicily. But, you know, who cares? Uh, with the GPS um, set to Sicily and I was meandering left and right and really enjoying myself and I tell you what I saw Italy with fresh eyes and I was taken aback by the beauty so I'm Italian and I don't know how this sounds because it's like a touristic advertisement but I tell you it's as beautiful as they say totally deserved reputation I was looking left and right you're surrounded by beauty everywhere and history and and I, my, I was driving with my jaw dropped and I drove through Lombardy, Emilia and Tuscany. And when I was in Tuscany, I actually heard on the news that they had suspended the ferries to go from, you know, the end of the boot of Italy to Sicily. Yeah. And so I said, well, OK, so I cannot get to Sicily. Now, what am I going to do? And I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted to live close um, by the woods. I wanted woods because there were beautiful woods close to Brussels where I was living. And I just wanted to live by the woods. 
And so I was driving and actually paying attention where these woods would be that I like, that I that look like the woods that I had in Brussels. And Tuscany, you know, it's so famous. Of course, even celebrities have houses there and it's very nice, but I was like, Meh, no, not for me. So I kept driving. And then I got to the south of Tuscany and into the region of Lazio, where Rome is. And the landscape changes, the vegetation changes a little bit. And instantly I liked it, right, just right there. And I stopped for three nights. And I, uh, even in that short time, I casually met some people. And then I drove to go someplace, I can't remember where, and I passed through some woods. The road goes right through the woods and my eyes opened wide and my jaw dropped and I gasped and I said, ah! the woods that I was looking for. So I settled down here just like that. I didn't have a destination. And where I'm going with the house is that in a month time, I had bought a house right here, which is not the house where I am now because right. it's never as easy as that. But in this region, um, there are cheap homes and probably you have heard because I have had some American friends tell me about that program that even I was not aware of, uh, that some municipalities, they sell these homes, they say for one euro. That means that you pay one euro and you renovate the house and you can use it up to a hundred years from now, but it's not really yours. You don't buy it. Then it will go back to the municipality, okay. uh, but you can have it for one euro and do some renovation and just use it for a hundred years. You know, because there, <laughs> there are many abandoned homes in beautiful places and the small hilltop towns um, are not densely populated. Um, the young generation leaves to go to the big cities. Yeah. Maybe after COVID, someone is coming back because now many more people can work from home. So I found, I was looking at uh, rent ad ads, and then I just checked out of curiosity how much houses were, because the problem with being a digital nomad is that you need, especially in Europe, a permanent address. And it's not easy to move. It's permanent for a reason. So yeah. you need some place somewhere, which normally could be a relative or a friend, but I didn't have any of those options. So to be okay with my paperwork, I really had this problem that I needed a fixed place where to get my mail and for my ID. So paperwork problems and then um, healthcare, and then my car plate, which was Belgian at the time. And then once I left Belgium, that it would not hold any more insurance and all of this, just paperwork, paperwork, paperwork. So I needed a house. And when I saw the price of houses around here, I could not believe it. And I said, well, let's look at how cheap it can get. So for how cheap I can get something that is filed as rec is recognized as uh, a dwelling like a house so that I can register my address there it's not the house of my life I don't care if I like it much I don't where it is even as long as it's in this large area of Lazio or northern Lazio this is called uh, like Tusha and I found a house I don't know if I should say, I bought a house for 10,000 euros really yeah, so that, you know, okay, I'm glad to say it because people should not think I'm rich or anything. 10,000 euros, I bought a house and so I could register my address there 
and it's in a lovely medieval hilltop town. And it's been an adventure because I bought a house before knowing the place, before knowing anything. I just did it. Who cares? Uh, and the best things in life happen like that. I'm really sorry to say. I also take very mature and thought through decisions, but also sometimes I do these kinds of things. Um, and it's a lovely place. And I actually felt adopted by the whole community because the lifestyle and the relationships among people in those small towns are still very much like in the old ways uh, with the downside that everybody knows everything about everybody. Um, you have to be careful with that, but they are also super friendly, very welcoming. And the, the town is really nice. It's full of traditions. They have uh, these celebrations all the time, now mostly suspended due to COVID. It's just a nice way of life that I didn't know before. And now I own this little place there that is my fixed point and that I didn't know. But when I bought the house, some friends were like, okay, so now you'll stop traveling, right? That's done, enough. And other friends actually told me, oh, finally, now you have your place and you will find that this is the beginning of your freedom to travel because now you have this security. You have a home base. You do. Right, because you have a home base from which it actually opens your door to travel more. It does, it, it does. So for me, that place, which is cute, it's nice, but it's mostly a place where I could register my address, where I can get my mail. So I'm legally existing on the planet and um, where I can crash if I don't have any other place to go to because Airbnbs are expensive. Accommodation in America is expensive and it's getting ever more expensive here. So to have a place where you don't have to pay 70, 80, 120 euros or dollars each night, yeah. you know, is handy. <laughs> uh, and then it's a place to keep my things of which I probably even have too many, but it's just my things, my instruments, my clothes. So I, it's a lovely feeling to have your place to go back to. But at the same time, so where I am now is this other house, which is really isolated. That house is not isolated. And I had this wish to be isolated and knowing the region more and more, I knew that there were houses like this, abandoned homes. And so I started asking around because this is how you do it around here. Uh, you don't ask Google. Google just doesn't know certain things. Around here, you have to ask the people. Amazing. And in like two hours time, I was put in contact with this lady who has this house, undisclosed location, right? You'll never know where it is. It's isolated. Not even the postman can find it. I keep losing mail and packages here. It's really I don't isolated. Think you have to worry okay. about any of our listeners coming and trying. <laughs> right? You're fairly confident in that. So she has Although this house. Some your neighbors, based upon what you just said, that you paid for a house. That you might find yourself a whole bunch of Americans moving when they hear 10,000. No, you're here already. It's yeah. actually way more than Italians and way more than other Europeans. This yep. is a market for Americans. I hear that all the time. All oh, that house was renovated by an American. Even there was a whole neighborhood that was bought by the American Foundation and was all renovated. And now they rent it out to American tourists. Yeah. Go figure. You're all over the place. When you were. When you were talking earlier, I, I, it came upon me um, that the distinction between when, when you talk about tourists as a positive versus a negative connotation, that it depends on which side of the line you're on, right? 
when you're going some, there's a positive connotation when you're the traveler because you see things with fresh, beautifully new eyes, right? Like when you were talking about traveling up um, through Italy, driving and looking for the place that you were gonna turn, make home. Um, but where the term tourist becomes a negative is when, when you're the person who's established quote unquote roots there, right? And then there are these, the people that come in with the new eyes, um, it's, you don't see it as them being new eyes. You used the term yesterday and I wanted to come back to it. You talked about the quote unquote complexity of your environment, mm -hmm. right? Every, like for example, when you were talking about how you find a house to rent in your region of Italy, mm -hmm. um, you're like, oh, you can't use Google. Like that doesn't work. Well, if, yeah. I'm, if I'm an American and I don't, you know, and I'm new to that area, um, or a Canadian for that matter, everyone likes Canadians better anyways. But if I were coming to, if I were coming to Italy and I were looking for a house, I'd have to understand the complexity of that environment enough to know that the only way I was gonna really find a domicile is not by going on the internet, not by looking online, that I'd have to make use of my resources, i.e. personal contacts. And that's part of that complexity of, I, of your environment. What do you mean by your complexity of your environment and, are, and how do we all experience something of this when we travel outside of our own culture? Hmm. Well, I would say that it's not as important when you travel. I'll just get out of the way right away because yeah. you are immersed in this new environment for such a short time as okay. you're a tourist right. that you don't need to adjust to that environment. And you, you oftentimes know. don't, right? I mean, no, you don't. You cannot. Right. That's, and that's part of why locals get, quote unquote, locals get sometimes frustrated, right? Like that they, that they don't adapt and even in the short, they're there for such a short period of time that there's no adaptation or assimilation. Yeah, you can't help that. But it's a matter of personal sensibilities. It's really hard. It's a talent, you know, to be a traveler. It's a talent to observe. It's a talent to take things in, to resonate, to... Um, yeah, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and to breathe in and and let that thing change you you know and see the world it's difficult to see the world with different eyes by definition it's these are commonplace words right but they are they're subtle they have really I, meaning behind them i really looking back and i'm not good at explaining this still i believe but i looking back i realized um, that the way I traveled since when I was 19 on uh, was special because I never felt an Italian abroad. And now with Facebook, you're in this group of expats or Italians here, Italians there. Yeah. I we help each other uh, out a lot. These groups are amazing, support groups. But many, especially Italians abroad, they will be Italians. They just talk about how much they miss this food and they, they go back on holiday to Italy every year. I never felt an Italian abroad, which probably goes back to whatever childhood I have had that did not instill in me a strong sense of identity. At the end of the day, everyone has an identity, but I discovered mine by traveling. 
I was clearly carrying with me some cultural baggage of which I wasn't aware, but at conscious level, I didn't feel I was this, I was that. And I played with my identity, by the way, consciously when I was traveling, when I was practicing English, not speaking it well, I would enjoy being on trains. By the way, back then for no internet, it means that nobody would ask you for your, to be friends on Facebook. Nobody could check you out. You know, you see each other on a train and then you're gone for eternity. So people would ask me how, what my name is or where I'm from. And I would just make it up. You know, that's just a symptom of how I would play with my identity. What am I saying with this? Going abroad, um, I try to truly, you know, this word that also should be defined to integrate myself, to be assimilated, to morph, to right. morph. Uh, it's it's a deeper process than like being a chameleon. It's not just on the surface. I was in Dublin first, my first like sejour, my first trip where I stayed for a while and worked, and then Canada, and everywhere I went, I just I just try to you know somehow fade out and you know let the environment change me. That's the beauty for me. I think that's a really key to being a good traveler or a good tourist, if you will, is the idea. And I and wherever I've gone, and I and I have traveled a bit, obviously as well. Um, we were talking about that in Europe. My, I think that the idea was not to be fake or not to remove myself from my personality. That somehow or another, my identity, my personal values, or who I am, has to fade away. But rather, if you're going to travel somewhere and you really want to understand and respect and you really want to get a sense for the culture, let a piece of yourself go and, um, and try to embrace and assimilate the culture. For example, like you were talking about Italians who go somewhere else and, you know, who, who have lived somewhere else and they go, oh, but I really miss this food or whatever else. We have a restaurant um, in Breckenridge. And it's, um, and, and it's called the Texas barbecue. And, and you want to know who it's completely filled with? <laughs> fucking Texans. It's filled yeah, with nothing but fucking Texans. And you're like, why did you go? Now I know that we're not that, it's not a whole different culture per se. Um, but when I go somewhere, I, I've always been amazed. Uh, same thing when I traveled throughout Europe, um, and you go to, you pass by a McDonald's and I haven't eaten in a McDonald's in over 25 years. I, I can't even imagine myself wanting to. Um, but when I passed by McDonald's in other countries, it was filled with Americans. And I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't get over thinking if you're going to go somewhere else, put all your, take all of your cultural identity for a little bit and put it aside and truly mm -hmm. embrace. If you, no matter what it is, if they, if you go to a country where they, they eat something that you find incredibly disgusting, try it anyways, right? To, to embrace the culture enough, not that necessarily to, to say that you adopt that cultural value, but enough to change you towards openness, towards an openness and an appreciation for the culture um, that you might not get otherwise. And I think that's part of being a tourist too, is that you, in being a tourist, you don't ever let go enough of your own cultural identity to mm -hmm. appreciate, respect, and embrace someone else. Well, identity. that's why I was going to um, propose that 
another option to being an Italian that goes abroad and has spaghetti for dinner, wherever they are. <laughs> there's, there's also another option, which is equally bad, which is, uh, now I don't want to focus on Italians, but say whoever goes abroad and they will not want, they're in a group maybe, which does not help. You need to right. travel by yourself, right? If you want right. to travel like we do. And you're in a group and they say, oh, should we go for spaghetti? No, let's go for something local. We are here for the experience after all. And so they go to a local restaurant and try whatever food is typical there. But they eat it like it's going to Disneyland, like it's a diversion. Like imagine the feeling if a group of tourists or whatever came to your house because they want to experience how you live your life and they slept in your bed just for one night and went away but approached the whole situation instead of kind of really respectfully taking in everything in silence they would just enjoy the experience like having fun and then they sleep in your bed for that night like for them it's fun and then they leave the next day they have done it check you know <laughs> wouldn't you feel like they they didn't get anything they didn't get anything out of it they, it was like it, you know there's um it it's funny you bring up Disney World because there's a um, there's a part of Disney World now that's called Epcot Center, and part mm -hmm. of Epcot Center is the land of I think it's the land of nations. It's been a been a while since I took my kids there, but in any case, there's like a little each little center is a different country, and like they and it's exactly what you're talking about. Like, oh, I can go and drink a Japanese beer, and you're like that doesn't really help you to understand well, what it's like to be in Japan. If it's right. meant to be fun, you can still do it as that. Otherwise, you lead me to say that it's it's many Americans when they come to Europe, they travel through five countries in a week because I understand having been to the States, it does change your perception of distances. So yeah. when you come back to Europe, like everything is so close together. Um, <laughs> it is kind of close, but, yeah. It culturally is not. And I believe that if you go in a week, even flying, maybe you do uh, Stockholm, Berlin, Venice and Rome, you know, that's just a poorly planned trip. Yeah. For me, you know, but, you know, if it's OK, it's OK. It all depends. You know, it's OK. Fine. No one's harmed. You know, it depends if you think that you know everything about Germany for having been in Berlin one day. That depends. You're stupid if you think like that. Yeah. But nobody's harmed. So you travel the way you want to travel. It's all fine and dandy. Just if, if we talk about this specifically and you ask me, then there is a lot to clarify, to say how and what. I learned that there was such a thing as Europe when I was in North America in 2001 for the first time. I learned how Italian I am um, abroad in certain traits of my yeah. habits and culture. I had to admit and realize, I said, oh, I am Italian because of this. <laughs> you know, I think the, um, I think that it, it depends. There is no judgment about how people decide to travel, but if you want to get to know a different culture, there's a way that you're more likely to do that if your purpose is to just have fun, well, you know, go to go somewhere and, and have fun, enjoy it. Um, go to the Caribbean islands, do what, do what you want to do. Um, but if you're really there to try to understand another culture, um, I think to some degree or another, the, what we've been talking about that, that idea of, of really trying to immerse yourself in it is a little bit different. Um, 
what when we talk about when we refer to different people in different cultures as the other um how do we as human beings relate to people that we define as mm -hmm. other? how do you think that we what do we we oftentimes sit there and say the other it gets us in a lot of we as human beings we have a a long history <laughs> i mean it's it's every single conflict right we refer to them like we have our home group right italians right versus americans they're they're the other europeans and americans we refer to that as the other how does that um how do we as human beings tend to relate to people that we define as the other? Do you have easy questions on your list? No. No, I just, no, I just want to mention- We've had this discussion before. That's not what I do. I don't do either. So first of all, I would like to mention that I did not complete my answer on the complexity question, but that's fine because okay. it's a complex question and uh, something else that I forgot. Fine. <laughs> If you go back, you can take it anywhere you want. No, yeah, I want to say that uh, I don't claim to be able to absorb another cult culture, to, to know another culture, that it is extremely presumptuous. It, it works like that. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know, in fact. It's sorry, sorry, another cliche, but it's like that. To really get to get a sense of what a culture is, you need to spend three to five to 10 years in that place or marry someone from there, right? So the way I travel, I like it. I believe that it gives me many emotions. I like to travel to places that I read books about. Like it's, I really try not to be dumb and narrow-minded. I like to absorb as much as possible, but I'm always a filter. I absorb what I can absorb. I still see the world through my eyes, no matter how open they try to be. So I never claimed to get a culture. Uh, absolutely. I have, I, I, you can get a sense of what a culture is if you spend enough time someplace. A Just sense of it, I think is exactly right. I don't know if you ever, um, but I think that we, when I talk about that idea of the other, I, I, um, I think part of the reason why we all, Mark Twain had a great quote and I'm going to butcher it, but it basically, um, Mark Twain basically suggested that travel is uh, is the cure for a lot of prejudices and and hatred. Mm. And oh no, the opposite. Yeah, huh? finish. But it's the opposite. It's you the opposite. Know, I think I, when you start to understand that your way of doing things is not the one and only way of doing things. That, yeah. That yeah. You, you are equally valid that they're equally valid and equally worthwhile because we have a way of looking at other people, the other, and thinking, oh my gosh, that's really stupid. That's a, that's a dumb way of looking at things. Um, it's, it has been my experience mm -hmm. that the more you travel, the more you travel, the, the, why do you travel? To confirm stereotypes. You go I to think, some place. I think, I think no, I know of course. Are, the people I know who are the most uh, ignorant and um, the most ignorant and the most stereotype filled are the people who have never left their own state, <coughs> Alabama. No, yeah. And um, <laughs> no, they they think right. what you have actually been on the field to prove. Stereotypes about uh, you know that. 
Canadians are nice people. Then you go to Canada and you find out that indeed they are. So you say, oh, voila. <laughs> but we were talking about this yesterday. Like one of the things, um, one of the stereotypes that Americans have of French folks is that they're rude. And uh, I had been to Paris I, um, once or twice. I think I had been to Paris twice. No, I take it back. I'd been once. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of true. But then I went to the rest of France, because believe it or not, there's a whole country outside of the city of Paris. And I was like, oh, that's completely not true. The French people are actually incredibly um, ingratiating, um, incredibly welcoming. Um, but what it is, uh, is that people in big cities, they, they tend to be on a busier schedule. Um, they tend to be moving faster. And so they give off the impression. And I was like, if you... If, and I've told people who say that the French are rude. I was like, if the only, if you came to the United States and the only place you visited is New York City, what would be your impression of the United States? And you'd be like, oh, they're really loud and obnoxious. And I was like, do you think that's true of people in Missouri? And they're like, no. I was like, so it would be a false impression of the country as a whole. And they were like, absolutely. I was like, hmm. same damn thing. Um, uh, I, think I don't know. I think that to some degree or another, I think that the people I know, now it's also, listen, and, and I'm sure it's, it's more true in the United States because we're geographically isolated, um, that for us to travel abroad, uh, generally you've had, you have more expanded resources, you know, financially and culturally. You've been more educated. You're much more, the people who travel out of this country, whereas I've met a lot of people in Europe who did not have a lot of financial means, but because everything's more geographically accessible, um, that you can travel a lot easier. But by and large, the folks that I've met that traveled um, are far more open and embracing and realizing that their culture is not the be all end all. So many Americans that I know, and especially it's the ones that haven't left this country, think that this country is, is it. Like that this is the way every, everything else that the way other people do things is completely and utterly stupid. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you're like, no, no, that's just really not the case. Well, I've found by traveling and living in different places that there is no perfect place, but right. uh, probably when you're really tired of life and you cannot take it anymore anywhere else, the only place that you will feel good in is where you come from, not because it's perfect, but because somehow the um, defects of that place are your own and you know them. So how is this, you know, connected to what you just said? Um, sometimes I do actually, I do believe that the more you travel, the more you confirm the stereotypes. Now, stereotypes doesn't mean every Scandinavian person is nice or every Canadian person is nice because you find jerks everywhere, etc. But there is also this general spirit of a place. And I find that all stereotypes are true. Aren't Italians loud? No, don't we do this? the gesture sorry if it's just audio you don't see it and we eat pizza like of course stereotypes are true uh it's um it's not a wrong view of a people it's just a very low resolution view of a people then you need to go there and find out about the nuances and what else is there but stereotypes are not false 
I believe. So by traveling sometimes, especially when something pisses you off, then you really see, oh, these Germans, oh, these Belgians, you know, or the French, they refuse to speak English to me. You know, it's according to the stereotype, you know. Uh, The Germans really are loud and obnoxious and rude. No, no, the Germans are not loud, I find. (laughs) I found, I, um, that was, I heard from so many travelers when I was in Europe about how much, um, I mean, they, they were probably just being nice, uh, but they were like, oh, I was like, oh, you folks must hate Americans. And I'm like, oh, no, we hate Germans more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, fascinating con- con- discussion on culture. Um, segwaying a little bit because uh, we are, I do want to try to limit it uh, so that we have enough time. But um, you host a remarkable podcast called Technoculture. Um, that is a series of interviews with uh, leading experts in the scientific community about how technology and science impact our lives. So the obvious question, just how does, um, how do you feel technology influences our lives in modern society? Um, I believe that it changes us from the outside in, just like I saw in a documentary somewhere uh, what nature did to us uh, a long, long time ago, where our bodies changed shape from like more ape-like to more human-like. They found this connecting links in the evolution. And they saw that hands first started looking more, I don't know, I I use the wrong words, like human, modern uh, human-like. Uh, but the torso was still like a gorilla, you know, and, and, and they made the point that it was as if we were being changed by our environment, which we also impact and interact with in turn, you know, we make spears and arrows and, you know, it's an interaction, but that that changes us from the uh, remote places in the body in like the torso would be the last place right. hands first it was a very fascinating thing and i believe that technology is something that is happening outside of us for the most part now of course someone thought about it and made it come true but all of these things change our environment not our souls and traditions inside it's the environment but by changing the environment so radically in some significant ways, deep ways, philosophical ways, then it slowly changes from the outside in. Uh, first, just the habits, having the phone in your hands all the time and this, the little things you can do, but it slowly changes how we think, how we feel, how we conceive the world and the environment and the concept of time, distances, ourselves, the concept of history. Right. I find technology, I, um, I, I have a love-hate relationship with technology. And I think for on the love side of it, it allows this. I talked to my dad, I was riding my bike this morning before, um, before we did this. And uh, I was talking to him, I was like, oh, I'm doing a podcast later with uh, a woman, an amazing young woman in Italy. And uh, my dad was like, what, how, what, how is that possible? <laughs> right. <laughs> my dad, my dad uh, is not exactly technology savvy. It's uh, I cannot tell you how many lessons I've had to give my dad. It's really pathetic. But um, 
but I, in any case, uh, I think that the ability that we're sitting here having a really profound conversation that then will be listened to by people globally. I have listeners in Australia, um, right? Literally across the globe, the conversation between a person sitting in Denver, near Denver, Colorado, a person near Rome, Italy, and that conversation can be heard by people all around the world. I find that unbelievably um, eye-opening and, uh, and life-changing in a really positive direction. Yes. But getting back to it on a far more, um, in a much deeper sense, like where you said it was going from the outside in, the place I, I, I watch as the disintegration of interpersonal communication. That to some degree, like when you were talking about the people who have their phone in their hands all the time, <clears throat> I was out at a restaurant, this is pre-pandemic obviously, um, but I was out at a restaurant and at, at a table right across from us uh, were four uh, young women, probably in their early 20s. And they're sitting there all having dinner together. And every single one of them was on their phone for the majority of the evening. I get it if you're looking something up or you're, you know, you want to show a picture or something like that. But like the vast majority of the evening. Um, and I, my daughter the other day, I talked to her and she was, she's like, dad, I got to go. And I was like, well, why? She's like, well, I'm sitting here hanging out with Mira, who's her stepsister. And I was like, sweetie, you don't ever have to apologize. You concentrate on the people that are right in front of you. I can talk to you on the phone later. And um, I think that the, the negative side of, of all of that is this idea that we push further and further away in our interpersonal communication with others. Hmm. I beg to differ. Actually. Oh, please go ahead. I'd love to hear that. I think that interacting with you over Zoom is different than interacting with you in person, but these are just two different ways of interacting. One is not better than the other. I actually believe that one is no less than the other, like the Zoom is less than being in person, because you can have very deep, meaningful interactions. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine that you can have these with people all over the world? So your potential network and connections like expand way beyond the people that can drive to your place that evening like we're doing now with the privilege for a, a severe antisocial like I am that when we are done with this then I'm just alone you know I don't even have to escort you to the door and be nice and say it's been really nice bye 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 you know so you can actually have quality interactions with people that you want to have an interaction with very selective quality interactions with people all over the world that's that's amazing and it's not preferable to being in person I think uh, it's different it's nice sometimes I really like this it's not less absolutely no it's fantastic like this this thing I believe that we have not seen yet how it will change how we think learn communicate the downside the biggest downside uh, so first of all if the ancient people had had this technology just a provoking thought because of course it's impossible they would never have invented the writing my idea you know right. i mean okay to count sheep that's why they started counting you know how many sheep that, do you me? yeah and that's that but um, and I'm an avid reader. I love reading. In fact, it's an experience in and of itself. It's something unique to read and to imagine 
with your mind what you're reading. But when you want to learn something now, don't we have this video tutorials? And when you Google how to do something, Google will return many videos also besides web pages that tells you how to do so the spoken word combined with video is so powerful and why is it powerful because it's so human it's the most natural thing to speak look you know and touch only so much because when you talk to someone you don't touch them all the time it's mostly hearing seeing right you know talking so this is amazing the downside is that even if these conversations Anything even you could say is valuable because in 200 years, no, let's say the example from today in the past, it's easier. What would we give to know how someone not knowing they were being observed were putting on their shoes in the early 1800s? We want to see. It's, you know, time travel. And so anything that we may record today may have an interest for people in the far future. The problem is that there's so much of this now online. It's a deluge, not of information, it's just a deluge of bytes and just videos. So there's a lot of noise. It's really hard to find valuable content. So I find it fantastic, but I believe that we are just at the beginning of a true transformation. And we have to keep our eyes fixed on the people who control the channels, the platforms where this content is being circulated. It needs to stay as open as possible, very democratic. Everyone deserves to have a voice and to be seen. It cannot be a business-oriented competitive thing to put quality content out there. It's by the people, for the people, you know. Wow, you're quoting the American constitution. Um, I, 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 um, I, I really tend to agree that idea of a democratic voice. Um, and yet you take a look at the, the proliferation of content and so much of the content just absolutely sucks. I mean, it's just terrible. Um, but I guess that puts the onus then on, on the person who digests that material, right? That puts the onus on the viewer to sit there and seek out actual material that's worthwhile. Um, and you get to, you get to choose what you want to listen to and what you don't. Um, of course, of uh, course which, you choose. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually a perfect way for me to segue because we, we should, I know you need to get out. Uh, it's actually, it's actually like almost eight o'clock where you are. Um, but, uh, but speaking of tuning into really awesome material, I cannot tell you, um, in doing the preparation for this interview, I got a chance to go through a number of um, your podcasts and YouTube videos. And for all of my viewers, please go and check out um, Federica's uh, podcast, Technoculture. It's fantastic. The interviews she does with folks. Um, I'm glad that I got to have you on where you get to talk a little bit more because in most of your podcasts, you get to take on this role where you're doing the interviewing. Um, but it's, it, you're a fabulous voice. You do fabulous interviews and the people that you get uh, to speak to are, it's, it's really every single one of them that I watched is a fascinating um, insight into where our society is going and how science and technology inevitably interact with us in the modern world. So uh, for those of you yes. who have had a chance to do so already, um, please go and check out uh, Federica's uh, podcast. Uh, it's 
fantastic. It's called Techno Culture. Um, it's a, if you found this podcast, you can find her. So um, don't Meg- raise expectations so much. A bit lower, <laughs> a bit lower, a bit lower. I I am a big believer in setting the bar low so that you can always jump up. I'm not a tall guy, so I like having a low bar that I can actually step over it. <laughs> but by the way, I mean, you were talking about. Um, about about stereotypes about Scandinavians about how they're all nice, they are all tall. They, I well, yeah, yeah. Scandinavian, it's not tall. Like I, I think I was the shortest person in the entire country when I was visiting, and I'm not mm-hmm. that short. Yeah. Like you know, I'm I'm average height, but like in Scandinavia, I felt like I was a midget. Oh yeah, actually, sometimes you go to some places like Scandinavia would be, but even the Netherlands. Some places oh, where they're, you know, you're in awe. They're all so beautiful. Yeah. It's like nicely built. This is how humans should look. Like they're all beautiful people. But strangely enough, if you're Italian, a bit furry, shorter, dark, you right. still get the guys because you're exotic there. Right. <laughs> You're um, like nobody will ever look at me. Look at this tall, blonde, blue eyes girls. They long get that legs. all the time, right? You <laughs> know, like, and I get that all the time. I like the short, <laughs> the short, hairy. Uh, it's I, a weird feeling the day you realize that's about traveling too, because where where you come from, you yeah. are part of the majority. When you travel to some place where at some point you think in your head you're always in the mindset of the majority. And then you find your, yourself someplace where you actually, you're actually exotic. That's so weird. That's so weird. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really gratifying every once in a while to do that, to be somewhere where you are the, you are the other and you are exotic. It's actually, it's quite sexy. Yes, I will always remember a friend in Ireland. Well, I met him there, but he was South African and he couldn't get used to for years to, you know, not being one of the few whites around. (laughs) And I don't have that experience. So it was really weird to imagine because in the global stereotypical culture, white man is always the one that has supremacy. But actually in his experience as a single person, not as white people in South Africa, which has been oppressors, but as himself growing up, he always felt the minority. He wasn't used to thinking of himself as somebody powerful. Actually, no. And so he, when he moved to Europe and to Ireland specifically, it took him a while to get used to that. That's Isn't interesting. That fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he was probably also the darkest person in Ireland. They don't, there, there's not a lot of skin. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, there is like a tan, light tan. Then there's pale, white, <laughs> transparent, translucent, and then there's Irish. <laughs> that was a great way. That was a great And way. I love them, you know, okay, we make these jokes. <laughs> I, I have been there. I've lived there for a while. Yeah, I absolutely love them. My complexion is really uh, light, fair. Like I don't get a tan ever. Yeah. And when even Belgians had a darker complexion than I have. But when I was in Ireland, I was looking around and was like, <gasps> 
that looks unhealthy. Look, look at me. Look how dark I am suddenly. It's all relative. It's really nice. It is. Uh, it, everything in the end comes down to relativity. Um, I'm, I do. I have a fairly dark, fairly dark complexion. Um, but yeah, in Ireland, I because I, I spent some a good amount of time there as well. And oh my, oh my, I uh, there like especially when you're sitting inside of a tavern for like and you don't see the light for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, this is why this is why you're so. Uh, and it just you know it's not uh, the amount of sun is not there. Can this air? Can this interview air? Yeah, of course it can. Um, uh -huh. Federica, thank you so much. Um, I am so, so pleased to have you on the podcast. Um, as I said, everybody go check out our podcast. Um, and I uh, can't say thank you enough. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. This is fantastic. Please, let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it again. I'm going to have you on in a couple. Um, in fact, well, I'll save this for another time. But um, I actually have a proposal for you off air on a, another podcast. I'd love to have you on. So, um, so Frederica, thank you again. We'll have a chance to chat with you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Till next time. Until next time.